why not? I, I feel for me that everything from the way I look to my tattoos to the way that I carry myself with that Brooklyn swag, it it does not necessarily scream um, Ivy League educated um, or the founder and director of a program like DCS. However, I'm going to be myself unapologetically and I'm going to support my scholars always and I'm going to find a way to knock down the walls to better support them. So why not? Yo, what's going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Delaware College Scholars Podcast. For this month, I had the chance to speak with our very own Executive Director of DCS, Dr. Tony Aline. With this episode, I really wanted to be intentional about our audience getting a better understanding of who Tony is at his core, his background, and his vision for DCS. It was a dope conversation with someone who has been a mentor, brother, and just so happens to be my boss. And I hope you all can agree and, you know, gain some nuggets of wisdom from what he has to say. Side note, we recorded this episode before the name changed. So if you hear us say Scholar Spotlight Podcast, that's the reason why. As always, though, remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And check this episode out on YouTube because we had a really dope video production. Shout out to Rock. Uh, the link to our YouTube page can be found in the description of the pod. I hope you enjoy. My guy, what's going on, man? All is well. All is well. What's good. up, man? Yo, what's up? It's good to have you here on the episode of the Scholar Spotlight Podcast. You know, this episode is definitely different because we're in person. You know, you've seen all the other episodes have been via Zoom, which which sucks. But, uh, you know, but I'm glad to, you know, have you here. You know, you mentor, brother. So it's good conversation. I'm excited to be here. Um, I'm usually the one doing the interview, mm-hmm. so it's, it's very awkward for me to be the one being interviewed, so I'm looking forward to having this conversation, and hopefully it's going to be a natural discussion, and yeah. the scholars and everybody else watching it will get some good insights about who exactly. I am. Let's exactly, exactly. So look, first question, you already knew this was coming, bro, so we asked everybody, uh, all our guests, to give us, you know, walk us through the arc of their career, and basically, essentially, what that means, I kind of want the arc, yes, so... I don't even know what it means, but I'm going to describe it. Is, um, essentially, I want people to get an idea of where you started. I know the story, but not many people get an insight into Tony, you know, Tony Aline. So where you started to, like, now as executive director of Delaware College Scholars. Um, so first, before I jump into that story, I have to just let people know that this is my COVID look, mm-hmm. um, just in terms of my hair. Um, this is the first time people seeing me in a while, so they're like, yo, what is going on with this brother right like now? You're looking like the girl from uh, Monsters, Inc. <laughs> yo, you got jokes. You got jokes. Don't let me get started. Because um, we both know that I'm yeah. way better looking than you. But anyway, in terms of my arc, as you say, um, grew up, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, first generation person in this country for my family. My family's Panamanian, so I'm an Afro-Latino. I went to public school for most of my life until seventh, eighth grade. And then I had a teacher, a social studies teacher, that he just saw that I was doing well in school. Mm -hmm. So for for me, I never really had to work at getting good grades. I just did it. But I never considered myself smart or gifted. It just Mm -hmm. came to me. This teacher, Mr. Roth, he told me about a program that he worked for called Prep for Prep. And he wanted me to apply to this program uh, to ultimately go to boarding school. How are you good feeling? Com- it was a good conversation. Like, yeah. I, 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 I like Mr. Roth. Uh-huh. Um, his class was cool. 
he gave me the application and I threw it in the trash. Yeah. Just <laughs> Straight simply, up. It's just to be the truth. Like, yeah. Being from Brooklyn, my mentality wasn't necessarily focused at that time about college or going to boarding school. I cared about basketball and girls. Yeah. And I had both of those in that situation, and I didn't need to have that changed. So he kept asking me about it mm-hmm. in terms of, hey, do you apply to prep for prep? And I was like, uh, yeah, I did. And he knows I was lying. So he actually directly mailed the letter home and called my grandmother and my mother. Um, and they, when I got home, of course, they were telling me about it. So ultimately, I had to apply to prep for prep. Got into prep for prep. And the first day I was there, I thought it was cool. But mm-hmm. to be frank, I was like, hey, these are a whole bunch of nerds. Yeah. Um, I yeah. still didn't see the benefit of it. But ultimately, I met um, the person who's my best friend to this day, a guy named Braxton Winston. And me and him decided to, to stick it out, and that was the best decision ever. I did prep for prep. Ultimately, I got accepted to St. Andrews School in Delaware. I went to St. Andrews, which was a blessing and a curse at the same time. How so? How do I say it? So, St. Andrews, I am always grateful for yeah. the opportunities I had to be there, both as a student for four years and then I worked there for 10 years. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I was overly aware that it was an institution not necessarily created for me. Um, so I was able to benefit from the culture and the things that I learned and the people I was surrounded with. But at the same time, I had many moments where I felt like a guest as opposed to it being my home. Yeah. So to kind of go through that and to live through definitely traumatic moments of, in terms of like culture shock and things of that sort, it, it, it was challenging. So I benefited from it. I loved it. But it was some things that you had to kind of live through. And you, you know, you, you yeah, went to and I, and I was, So, so yeah. that's why, I mean, I want to stop there because I want to touch upon that. I mean, we've given it a name now, but, but like probably at the time we probably didn't have a language. But the imposter syndrome, you know, this feeling of not belonging. So like kind of walk us through how you navigated that. You know, you're from Brooklyn, from the hood. And now this is your first time, safe to say, that like you were around other white students have being taught by white teachers. Mm-hmm. Like. How did you navigate that to ultimately get to where you, you know, you wind up going? That's a great question, and you're 100% right. In the sense of the whole concept of imposter syndrome, I did not have that language back then. So it was was definitely a sense of imposter syndrome and just double consciousness in Mm -hmm. terms of just trying to see who I was for who I am as opposed to the lens of others. Yeah. And I will Walk say... Walk us through that right quick because maybe our listeners may not know the, what the double consciousness is. How was that coined? Like, so the whole concept of double consciousness is that we as uh, people of color or we as underrepresented people, mm-hmm. we constantly have to wear uh, some type of veil. Um, it's a veil that is... It, it protects us so that when we're being seen by white people or by the group that's in power, yeah. they're more readily able to accept us. We can never take off that veil mm. because if we were to take off that veil, it would scare them. <laughs> um, so me going to boarding school, I definitely had to put on a veil because if they saw the Tony from Brooklyn, yeah. it may scare them. Yeah. Um, and for me, kind of to double back a little bit in terms of coming from Brooklyn, I didn't realize all that I had lived through and experienced from birth to 14 until I went to boarding school mm. in the sense of mm. that it wasn't normal. Yeah. Um, my neighborhood, all black and Hispanic, that, that was my norm. Um, growing up in my grandparents' home, it was almost nine, ten of us in a two-bedroom apartment. That was normal. Yeah. There was nothing that wasn't abnormal about that. Even the concept of living and not necessarily having a bed, I don't remember having a bed to myself until my parents got an apartment when I was maybe in fourth, fifth grade. Mm-hmm. Until then, I was sleeping on couches, sleeping with my grandparents, sleeping wherever we could sleep. And yeah. that was normal. Yeah. And I don't say this in terms of to maximize the whole poverty story because that's not what I'm about. It was just the the culture that I grew up with. It was a wealth of love, not a wealth of money. 
but mm. my parents um, and my grandparents, I at no point realized that I didn't have much. But then when I went to boarding school, oh. <laughs> I realized I didn't have anything. Um, so that within itself was a, a shock, yeah. just in the sense of seeing the, the wealth and opportunity and quite frankly, at times the waste that the other side was living. And it made me appreciate where I came from, but at the same time, it, it made me question it at times too, mm. um, just in terms of aspiring for more for the people that look like me and came from similar circumstances. And yeah. I don't know if I pulled that a little bit too far away from what we were talking about. Nah, but that's just no, nah, no, you didn't. You didn't. I mean, I think there's so many nuggets of what you said that resonate with me, especially that that contrast. Once you get there, you see that like you're still appreciative of you know where you come from, but you also see that like oh no, not everybody is on this same sort of playing field. On my end, I know being at St. Andrews, and this interview is not about me, but I'm going <laughs> to throw in my story in there too. I became very envious, like very envious. I was like, why is it like this? Why do they have this big house with two parents in the house, like all this stuff, you know? And I was like, I wanted that and wanted to aspire. I do, what resonates with me is aspiring for more, you know? I think, you know, that's where. I was able to grapple with it, you know, um, down the line. But at the time, it was it was difficult, man. Man, and even, and I feel like I'm hijacking this whole conversation, the whole concept of wanting more, Yeah. Um, I went through a phase of not understanding what that really meant for myself. Hmm. Because when I was at St. Andrews and even at Wesleyan and beyond, uh, I went to Wesleyan for college, yeah, yeah. is the assumption that if you go to this path of college, and you have all these degrees, you are better than those who have not gone that path. And part of what I've come to accept is that if you are not in college, it does not mean that you couldn't be successful in that. It just means that potentially you just didn't know what the rules of the game were. Mm -hmm. And if you got those rules, you could be just as successful, if not more successful than someone who has gone to college. Yeah. So I'm fortunate enough to go gone to Really, really good schools, mm -hmm. um, whether it's for graduate degrees or certifications. I have uh, some, um, some pretty good schools on my resume. In every single one of those situations, I've met people that are not the brightest bulb. Mm. Um, and if I go back to my hood in Brooklyn, um, I grew up in Crown Heights and Flatbush, I know people who have dropped out of high school who have a lot more sense than people who have gone to these prestigious schools. And that really resonates with me actively as I work with my scholars, yeah. um, in terms of DCS scholars, in a sense of they are not, they don't have less simply mm -hmm. because they're first generation. Mm -hmm. They just have different obstacles that they need to overcome. And all we're trying to do is to equip them with the tools so they know how to play the game. Yeah. And once they know how to take the game, uh, play the game, they can master the game. Right. Um, so they're not weak. They're actually stronger than the average. Um, and we're just trying to highlight them in that sense. That's real. That's real. I mean, we try to do that with the, with the podcast too. And like, I, I, li I like how you phrase it because it's not... A lot of the narrative sometimes can be contrary to what you, you know what you were just saying in terms of you know these are pity pity stories and like oh my like we need to save these children because otherwise without us they wouldn't be successful like it's not about that no they are enough they are strong and we are providing them with some of the resources so that they can have access to the same mm -hmm. opportunities other kids may um, have inherently one hundred percent yeah yeah so I want to touch upon, I mean, I know this part of your story, but, you know, after going uh, from, to Wesleyan, and you alluded to this, you know, went to Wesleyan, I'm also a Wesleyan man, but uh, you had this, you, you know, senior year, you had this choice 
take a job, you know. Oh. Yeah. So I want you to uh, <laughs> kind of talk about, you know, that pivotal moment where, you know, you could have took this job at Wall Street and you decided to do something else. Um, so you're talking about working at uh, finance. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. my senior year at Wesleyan, I, it was a middle, it was right after fall semester, um, and I needed to make up the gap to, to mm -hmm. pay for uh, spring semester. Um, so I went to the Career Resource Center, and they had different summer, not summer, uh, winter opportunities. So I just signed up to do something in New York just to get some bread, just to yeah. get some money um, to pay off the semester for the spring. And they assigned me to work at Bloomberg in New York City, which is a finance company. I mm -hmm. have no sense at that time what finance is. I just knew it was a job. They trained me. They gave me a whole bunch of bread for four weeks. I'm good to go. Yeah. Um, so I, I did the job. I worked really hard. Um, so I was waking up at 5 o'clock to get to work, and I wasn't getting home until 10, 11 o'clock at night. By luck of the draw, I was assigned to a VP. Mm -hmm. um, and after that four-week session, um, I got a letter. Um, back then, people were mailing letters and yeah. sending emails. She uh, invited me to apply full-time. Um, I said, why not? I don't know why they would hire me. Mm -hmm. But two weeks after that, in March, I got a letter that I was accepted in terms of they wanted to um, kind of bring me on board to work yeah. finance. And I had... My major was sociology and African American history. I don't know <laughs> you, why they wanted me. You did not belong. I called her up. One. Yeah, and she just said she liked my work ethic. Mm -hmm. That it wasn't that I knew the material, but she could teach me that. Yeah. It was the work ethic that couldn't be uh, kind Talk. of replicated. Yeah. So it was flattering. It was a six-figure job with a bonus right out of college, um, and for somebody without money, it was it was definitely appealing. At the same time, I was taking a course just talking about educational philosophy and the different approaches to kind of um, lessening the educational gap, mm -hmm. and it was discussing Teach for America. And I wrote a, a, a paper pretty much destroying the program, yeah. just in the sense of how you going to bring people in there for two years. Um, you know how many folks on bringing the black and brown people to teach the kids? Like It was a really scathing review of the program, but I said, hey, it's a job. Let me apply. Yeah. Um, and then... It would teach you America. There's certain sites where you could be located, mm -hmm. and I saw it as an opportunity for me to just live someplace else. Um, so I applied and I said, like, I will only do it if I'm in Miami, Atlanta, just because it's Miami yeah. and Atlanta, um, <laughs> and then Charlotte, where my best friend lived. Gotcha. Um, I got accepted, and they placed me in Charlotte. So I had the opportunity to do Teach for America, or I had the opportunity to go into finance in New York City, and ultimately I chose Teach for America. Um, just uh oh no, just. I need you to walk us through that decision again. Why? Like, why? You know, and the reason why I'm honing in on this is because I know for myself at that time, I think I would have made the same choice as you. But as somebody, you, you know, and even some of our students or people may who are in the same position as us, you chasing the money. You know what I mean? And you see that six figure like, bro, like, you know, like <laughs> I'm still chasing it. Yeah. Right. But you knew that there was a higher calling. Like, how did you have that? What, all to do that it. Yeah, yeah. I wish I had some super articulate way of describing mm -hmm. it. For me, it came down to pure happiness. So I felt that if I chose to work in New York City in finance, that lifestyle just didn't jive with who I was. Yeah. Um, in the sense of there would be no work home personal life balance i would be going in there working 15 16 hours um not really having time to enjoy the money that i was making mm -hmm. and then it was just so high paced and it, it it lacked a moral compass that i felt that i needed yeah um versus teach for america one me and my best friend always talked about living together um so that was a massive appeal mm -hmm. um just in terms of going down south and being in charlotte with your best friend um and then two 
I always felt connected to education, whether it was mentoring at St. Andrews or doing stuff through my fraternity at Wesleyan. Yeah. I always felt connected to mentoring. And I felt that it was an opportunity for me to just do some teaching before going to law school. Mm -hmm. Because back then I, I felt that I was going to go to law school. So it just made sense to, for me, for my personal happiness, to delay the money or the mm -hmm. instant gratification of having more money and do something that I felt was more of a calling. Um, so that's why I ended up choosing education as opposed to finance. Gotcha. You think you made the right choice? 1,000%. Yeah. Because even back then, I felt that I was going to do it just for two years. But after teaching and after being on the ground level of one of the biggest inequities that this country has created, you, you can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. um, so that whole concept of going to law school, after that second year of, of teaching, I knew that that wasn't my calling. Yeah. I knew I had to do more for education. Um, and at first it was, okay, going to St. Andrews, um, more so as a role to support black and brown students at St. Andrews. But as I kind of went to graduate school, it kind of brought me right back to the educational inequity in public ed um, and, and doing a program like DCS. Yeah, so let's, so let's pause there. So great segue to the next question that I wanted to ask you because this idea of you understanding your calling, right? And that you were called for more, even being at St. Andrews. You know, I wouldn't be at St. Andrews, Rockier, Henry, a lot of the black and brown uh, men and women that you brought, you know, or that you recruited. It's a testament to, to you and your realness and authenticity, like why a lot of us, you know, decided to go. But even then you still knew that that wasn't necessarily the end all be all for Tony Aline. And so kind of walk us through that next sort of, pursuit or uh, initiative that you, you know, that you started to uh, drive with Project SOAR and then what ultimately became, you know, DCS? I would say that, so I'm at St. Andrews. Mm -hmm. um, I, I love the work that I'm doing, more so for the black and brown lives I was impacting, less so for just working at St. Andrews. Okay. Um, so when I came to St. Andrews, it was after talking to Tad Roach and uh, Stacey Dupre um, in a sense of, I know what I want to do here. It mm -hmm. may not be this traditional role that you guys have here, but I, I care about these students of color, yeah. um, in particular the males of color. Um, at a time, there, there was not, uh, I, don't, I don't believe there was any males of color um, on staff. So I came there with that focus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for me, that was filling my bucket, but I always felt that the students that I got to come to St. Andrews and to support at St. Andrews, Ultimately, because they're at a school like uh, that school, they're going to be okay. Right, right. Um, and it, it was always nagging me that I know I can impact other kids, other scholars mm -hmm. who don't have the benefit of being at one of the top boarding schools in the country. Right. Um, so that itch was me working with Apple Criminic School me engaging with students who were not necessarily passing, black and brown students mm -hmm. um, who weren't necessarily passing, and having them do a summer program, which was initially called Project SOAR. That program did really well. Mm -hmm. um, it was about three, four years of just working with the middle school students in Apokominic, and it just got the attention of the state. The When I say the state, it was the then governor of Delaware, the then secretary of education for the state of Delaware, um, St. Andrews had a board member, um, Paul Harrell, who passed away um, a couple months ago. He was integral um, yeah. just in terms of connecting the dots. At that time, he worked at the state and Tad Roach mm -hmm. um, in the sense of Tony has this program that's working. Um, clearly, the state has a, a problem mm -hmm. um, that they want to answer. How about we put our brains together, a public-private partnership, and see what kind of solutions we could come up with. 
that was the meeting that we had. Yeah. After the meeting, Tad Roach said, "Hey, Tony, do something." Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was like, "Do something." Like, first of all, how much money are you giving me in yeah. terms of to create something? Because I could work all day, but if I don't have the funds to kind of create something, then it's, it's not going to happen. It's right. just an idea, precisely. So they both St. Andrews and DOE donated money to put together a pilot of DCS. Um, wow. But I got to create it from scrap um, in terms of my experiences with Prep for Prep, my experiences with St. Andrews, my experiences just in working in education. Mm-hmm. Like if I could do something to help um, close the achievement gap and get more black and brown students or students in poverty, I should say, um, and first generation students into college uh, because DCS has students that are not just black and brown. This is what it would be, and it what, became DCS. I mean, so what was the strategy behind that, though? Like, you just, it was the culmination of those experiences, what you had learned through grad school, like, all of this, like, you know, the culmination of all of that is what, I mean, because even then, you can have those experiences as in still not having necessarily a clear vision on how you're going to implement this. You know what I mean? So, like, good question. I, I think for me, it was... I've always been a data person. Mm-hmm. Like I try to not to make emotional decisions. I try <laughs> yeah. to kind of see what the situation is, get as research as much data as possible, see what things have been done in the past, and then add my little innovation to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the DCS kind of premise, Harvard did a study back in 2014 that had a, a whole bunch of stats about low-income students and the gap in terms of them achieving a higher level of success from the state of Delaware. So I used that as the framework. Okay. Um, low, uh, low income students and students of color are graduating at lower rates. Um, they're not going to four year colleges. And even the ones that do go to four year colleges, they're not staying there. Right. This data mimics what's going on nationally. Okay. That's the frame that I need to solve. What can I do with all my wealth of experiences to address this issue? I knew that at St. Andrews, the concept of being away from home is massive in the sense of you are now independent and you have to learn certain soft skills to be mm-hmm. successful. Mm-hmm. So I, was, I thought if I could do anything, I needed to be residential. Um, I felt that starting senior year is just too late. So I knew it needed to be multiple years. So guess what? We're going to start in 10th grade. Okay. So if we have residential and we have multiple years, what do they need to know? They're taking, and when I say they, as my scholars, um, a lot of them are taking competitive classes in their public schools, but they are unaware that what they're learning in public school may not necessarily align with what colleges are doing. So guess what? I'm going to make sure DCS is having them see the things that they will see in college. So Socratic seminar, critical thinking skills, a lot of writing, reading, and debating. So I made that an emphasis of the program Um, with SATs. A lot of them were not taking SATs until test day. So guess what? Let's give them some prep. Mm -hmm. And then a special sauce is the student advisors, which you were a student advisor um, in terms of in the program before you arose to be I know, <laughs> right? I know. a program director. Um, but as student advisors, I felt that I personally could talk until I'm blue in the face, but it's something different when scholars are connecting with students who are in their same peer group and only a couple of years away. Yeah. Um, so initially it was using St. Andrews um, in terms of coming back mm-hmm. and working as student advisors. We're at the point now where actual graduates of DCS are working as student advisors and they're mentoring the students. So I put all that in a pot and that was the creation of the program. Which is, I mean, which is so dope. And there's no doubt about it that DCS has been successful. I mean, in it's eight years of existence and you've touched upon that, what's made DCS special. I kind of want you to talk about what are some of the things that you learned and like some of the mistakes you may have made earlier on and like, yeah, with DCS and like, how has it evolved and changed to what it is today? 
that's a tough one. Um, not that I'm perfect. Yeah, uh, yeah. I've done so many wrong stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say one is not trying to do everything myself. Mm. Um, so as the program was in its infancy and just starting out, it was easier for me to kind of be a one-man shop. Yeah. As the program grew, I quickly found myself spreading myself too thin. Um, so at first, the obvious thing was that I was running a program and still working full-time at St. Andrews. Like, that, that's a lot. <laughs> right. Um, so then even after that, I'm running the program full-time. But instead of it being 30, 60, 90 students, it's 150, 180 students. And I'm still trying to do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I could go back, I would try my best to hire good people that I could trust to kind of help with the expansion and kind of be able to not try to do everything on my own. So that's one. Two, the biggest thing that I really want to work on actively or that we are working on actively uh, is pulling the parents in more. Mm. Um, I feel that my relationship with the parents, it starts too late um, in a sense of we accept the students in sophomore year. I work with them or we work with them for that first summer. And then I'm not actively engaging with parents until the financial aid process which is something that we've already started to correct. We need to have partnership with the parents a lot sooner. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's crucial in terms of kind of improving our numbers and our statistics and our outcomes are already strong, but I I want them to be even stronger. So I would say those two things are the biggest things. Gotcha, gotcha. So yeah, I mean, you touched upon this already uh, and just, you know, your your, uh, response, but your role has changed too. Mm -hmm. You know, like you said, you went from the first couple of years being the one man show I mean, obviously, you know, you had, you had still had help, but spreading yourself thin and then, you know, realizing that bringing other people on, et cetera, et cetera. What are scholars, I mean, like I'm close to you, so I I know what your life is like outside of DCS, but you know, a lot of our scholars want to know sort of the ins and outs of Dr. Tony Aline. I don't even want to use Dr. Tony Aline, just like Tony, you know, just Tony Aline. Yeah. I mean, cause I know you, you know, you break it down to us day like day by day how are you like how are you managing this as the executive director but a father and like how much family is important to you you know um i kind of want them to see you for for you and not just not to say that these other things don't define who you are but you know mm-hmm. what i mean like no I, I i understand it yeah um so first of all i gotta shout out the wife and the family yeah lt Layla torn is my eldest yeah uh she's 13 she's almost my height um she <laughs> I guess. That, that ain't saying much, bro. Come on, you yeah, know you. You're funny. You're funny. But she, I say it and people think I'm joking, but she's my best friend. Mm-hmm. I, I love LT. Um, and then Tate, my eight-year-old, I say she's my mini-me. She's like the male, the female version of me. Um, and then I have Brooklyn, uh, my son Brooklyn, uh, who was just born. He's my COVID baby, so yeah. he's nine months old. <laughs> um, and I start off by shouting them out because I'm huge on work-home-life balance. Mm-hmm. Um, I see what can happen when you don't have that and everything comes back, man. It's, it's all about happiness. And when I wasn't happy, my home work balance was just completely out of whack. So that's something that even as the director of DCS, I'm emphasizing, make sure you have a personal work-life balance, Mm -hmm. whether it's you, whether it's other employees, like you have to know what to prioritize. Um, in terms of my daily um, kind of schedule it's not normal yeah I, go ahead and walk up through it because i i look i listen i tried to uh, adapt my uh my schedule like yours tough. and that didn't last for uh for too long but 
So I tend to wake up at around 3.34 every day, regardless. I wake up, first thing I do is Bug it out, yo. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I, I do, I, I, it happens. And yeah. everybody makes fun of me because usually for that first half an hour, that hour, I'm responding to emails or I'm yeah. sending out emails. So it's not uncommon for you to wake up at 7, 8 o'clock and not send you like four or five emails mm-hmm. to just get the day jumping off. So I'll do that for half an hour, hour. Then I I try to work out. So yeah. I go to the gym, I'll go for a run, and I do that for 45 minutes to an hour. And then I come back. Typically by that time is either get the kids ready for school or the baby Brooklyn is up mm-hmm. and I take care of him for a bit. Um, and then from 7.30 to usually around 1.32, I'm just doing DCS work. Yeah. Whether it's meeting with funders, meeting with different partners, just doing all the DCS work. Um, and then typically I'm free from like 3 to 6, 7. Um, and then I try to really focus on family time. Yeah. Um, so whether it's with Brooklyn or the girls, just family time. Um, and then after, if any meetings need to happen in the evenings, I'll have those meetings. But that's typically my rinse for cycle repeat um, daily activities. I think that's so dope. And I, lo- I love the idea. The one thing I have taken from you is ending my day earlier. So like not going into the night at seven or eight. And I think really DCS affords you that opportunity mm-hmm. with the flexibility and, you know, the environment that we have being able to uh, to make your own time. As long as you're getting the work done, you know, then mm-hmm. then you're good. Um, I'm not getting up at three. Like you miss me with that, but I'm up at five, you know, and um, and still, you know, still kind of the same sort of thing as you. I can take this in a couple of different directions and I kind of I do want to go here real quick and then I'm going to go back to the other question I had. So. It hasn't always been like this, like some people. So what I mean by this is that black man, you're reading this. I mean, you're leading this organization. Not everyone has that that privilege and that opportunity to do that, to be able to make their hours and stuff like that. Like how has that, how has that affected, you know? Uh, like how me being who I am and leading this organization kind yeah. of impacts the work? Yeah. I will say that I am overly aware of my presence when I enter a room. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am unapologetic about who I am and the experiences that I've had. Um, in a sense of, I'm a very proud Brooklynite. Like everything I do, I, I represent Brooklyn to the fullest. As um, we can see with the with this always, sweatshirt, always. And I'm also, as I kind of talked a little bit about before, there's a phrase that, what is it like? Don't let these, don't let these degrees fool you, or something along those yeah, lines. Yeah. Um, I'm from Brooklyn. I got hands. I know how to use them. Like, <laughs> like I could do it. Um, but at the same time, I also want to make sure that the work we are doing is hitting a need and hitting it in an authentic way because I 1000% see myself in my scholars. Mm, So mm. it's different when you have the opportunity to create something. And when you look at your students, I see myself in their shoes and things that upset me, things that I know I personally don't like. I see it as, not being beneficial for my scholars. So I'll work extra hard to have those things not occur. Mm-hmm. Um, so something that you alluded to before is the whole concept of a narrative um, in terms of uh, underprivileged, under-resourced, um, um, primarily black and brown, first-generation type of students. The narrative is typically around the pity story. Mm-hmm. That, that really upsets me because I personally do not see my life as a pity story. Did we have much money? No, but I know the work that my grandparents and my parents put 
into their lives so that me and my sisters could have opportunities. And by no means do I want them to be pitied and no, by, by no means have I pitied myself. And I feel like our scholars, they have very similar stories. And what we do with DCS is we help them take ownership of their stories and have the power and the strength to express their stories. And then we tell them the rules of the game. And then once they have those rules, they know how to get from point A to point B. And ultimately, it could be the trajectory to change their family narrative. Um, So that's something that is I hold very dear to my heart. And I do believe that being a a Afro-Latino founder of an organization that's working with under-resourced, underrepresented students, that I have an extra oomph Mm. just because I have that 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 chip on my shoulder. Yeah. Um, and it's not a chip that's ever going to go away. That's real. That's real. I just want to let, let that sit. Um, yeah, no, for real, mic drop. Going back to our scholars, because one thing that you've taught me, it's always about the kids. It's always mm-hmm. about them above all else, you know, and I just, I respect that because it's not like that with other organizations, you know? But bringing back to the sort of going, yeah, going back to them, what's one thing you wish our scholars knew about you that they don't currently don't? I'm funny. Girl, you can laugh. I don't want to laugh to give you that gratitude. No. One thing I know about me. Um, he said, I'm funny. <laughs> I, I would say we started going this route about a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love being active in athletics. And a lot of times when people think about college, um, they don't necessarily pair that directly with athleticism and just being physically active and being physically fit and engaging in competition and things along those lines. But I I love sports. Yeah. I was a, played three sports in high school. Um, I played sports in college. Um, I, I love that sense of camaraderie and teamwork that can, that can happen with sports before pandemic um i want to say a couple of months before we we signed up as a, a dcs team to do something called tough mutter mm-hmm. which was like a 10 mile obstacle course and i loved it and i envisioned kind of having that be a core activity that scholars could volunteer and not be required to do but if you want to do it hey come on let's let's do this um competition together so i, I if I could say I would want them to see a side of me, I have to see that side of me more yeah. just in terms of athleticism and just being competitive. Got you. All right. Next question. I, I know you as like the master fundraiser, you know? Oh, um, and so Bill and Melinda Gates walk into the DCS office tomorrow. What's the pitch that you give them? And how do you secure my salary specifically in that pitch? <laughs> I'm not putting my secret sauce on the mic. You can't do. Oh, you can't do it like that. No, I, I would tell you what I, I would ask of them. Okay. All right. Um, so if uh, a wealthy donor came in and said, "Hey, Tony, this program is doing really, really well. Um, mm-hmm. We want to support you. What kind of new initiatives you would want to do?" I would, and a blank check. I would say, "Build me a facility." Not necessarily to replicate a, a private school or a public school and have that type of kind of scenario, but have us have our own facility so that we could triple, quadruple the amount of students we serve in the summer, but then also be able to serve students during the school year. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now, because our, our partner schools that we utilize over the course of the summer, their beds are full during the school year. But if we had our own facility, all of a sudden we could work with students from Friday to Sundays um, and give them that same DCS kind of uh, opportunity and knowledge with the year. residential speech 
throughout the, the school year. So with a blank check, I would say, and I'm shooting for the moon. Yeah. Give us a campus. That's that a game changer, man. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, that's definitely. a game changer. All right. Paint this picture for us. You got two students. One participates. Uh, two students at the same high, public high school. One participates in DCS. The other doesn't. Why is the student who participates in DCS better off? And I'm hitting you with the, I mean, I, I got to read them off because, like, I, when I was writing them down, they were straight fire. So I just got to make sure I'm delivering oh, them nah, you, to you, you. You are. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't worry. I won't miss a beat. Uh-huh. Um, I would say what I hope our DCS scholars kind of get from the experience. One, they're not alone mm. um, in the sense of we are working with all 19 school districts, about 50 different high schools. And at times you could feel isolated, even if your high school has a thousand kids. But with DCS, you're pairing yourself up with kids from all over the state. Um, so moments that I love is when I see some of my Wilmington kids becoming really good friends with a kid from Sussex. Um, so that is an amazing thing. So you're not alone and yeah. you're developing this whole cohort bond. Two, the confidence that comes with that um, in a sense of once you realize that there is no Wizard of Oz um, that is all off a side and you learn the rules of how the game is played, all of a sudden you could be more confident in talking to your classmates of, yeah, Delaware College Week is good, but there's more to that. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the common app. Um, here's how you write this essay. Nah, you could tell this story. Here's a way that you could tell this story. So having the confidence of that whole piece. Um, so I would say those two things, and there's definitely more things, but those two things will probably be the biggest things. Gotcha. If you were one of our scholars in today's climate, how would you advise slash mentor yourself? Oh, or what man. would you want for, from actually better question, what would you want from an advisor slash mentor right now during this time? That makes sense? It does, it does. Yeah. I'm trying to think of my answer. I think what I wanted for myself and what I want for my scholars is demanding honesty. Hmm. Um, don't make it seem as if everything's going to be okay and that there's a clear-cut yes or no answer to a situation when there may not be a yes or no answer to that situation. Um, and what I find has worked well for me, both in terms of being a, an advisor um, uh, when I was at St. Andrews and just talking to students and now in this role, is that I have no problem just being straightforward. Yeah, It may hurt your feelings, but you need to know what the real deal is. And now we can sit down and we can prepare for what opportunities are best for you. Um, so I would say I would demand and ask for that level of honesty and follow that up with support. Mm-hmm. Um, those two things paired together could be very beneficial. Okay. All so right. You can't throw me off, man. Yeah. All right. Look, no, you, you try. Yeah, you that try. was good. That was good. That was good. All right. Look, we're transitioning into probably my favorite segment of the podcast. It's the Mad Minute. So uh-huh. rapid fire Let's go. Um, questions. So um, you don't got much time to think about these. All okay. right. So New Jersey Nets or Knicks? First of all, it's the Brooklyn Nets. Um, I'm go- I was going back in time, all right, because I know you a little bit old. So that's you know, why I said it's New Jersey. 2021. Jer- <laughs> we're talking about Brooklyn Nets. Either way is a complicated question. So I was a lifelong Knicks fan. Uh-huh. But you can't go against Brooklyn. But, no, listen, but they haven't always been in Brooklyn. So at the time when they were new, fine, whatever. No, wait, go- wait, wait, no, wait, hold up. So my watch says it's 2021. So extra. What are you referring to? So extra. I'm, I'm just saying. Go ahead. I'm right, so, it says 2021. Right, so you Brooklyn you have a watch too. It's Brooklyn 2021, Nets. right? Yes, it is. Brooklyn 20. Nets. Okay. All right. Anyway, favorite activity you do with the family? Uh, I like game night. 
Um, so typically after dinner, we, we pull out a board game and we, uh, everybody has a turn. What's your favorite uh, board game to play with now? It's, I don't even know if you know. It's something called Burrito Wars. It's mm-hmm. some weird game that my daughter Tate loves, <laughs> and you just make random matches, and then if you get a certain match, you got to pick up this fake burrito and throw it. It's Interesting. Google okay. it. Google it. All right. Favorite food? Wings. Either a Spanish Panamanian meal called Corito or barbecue wings. <laughs> okay, my boy brought it out. Okay. Oh, yeah, come on, man. I got it. Eduardo. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, favorite athlete? I would say Mariano Rivera. Okay. LeBron James or MJ? John Starks. What? Uh, anyways, all right. Uh. So, okay. Anyway, we don't got time for this. So, personally, you know that you've had a huge impact on my life as a mentor, as a brother. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, whatever. Yeah, it's just crazy. Just to see, like, just the evolution and just like, you know, 14 years old and now I'm 24, you know, working for DCS is just full circle. Um, but you're also a father of three. And I know you, you know, you definitely think about your legacy. Or I'm sure you think about it a lot. What do you hope others will say about you once you're gone? Whew. When I'm gone, um, hopefully that won't be for a really long time. Yeah. I, I want my legacy to be, that I I don't give up and I hopefully inspire others to always fight and not give up. So when I think of legacy, I, I could think of many different segments or groups that I'm a part of. Um, the most prevalent is, is my kids um, in terms of just the legacy that I'm putting on for them. And with my girls in particular, because Brooklyn's only nine months, they've see me fail they've Mm. seen me fall Mm. um and i want them to know that never be defined by your failures you just always have to get up you always have to kind of continue doing the work that you need to do yeah um so i would say my legacy hopefully is that every time i've fallen i've gotten up 10 times stronger not true so last two questions that we ask to every guest it's our ring the bell segment what advice would you give your 16 year old self Invest in Apple. <laughs> Facts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't. Not Question, re- though. Would you still be doing DCS, you think? If you invest uh, in Apple, I mean, you obviously be I a billionaire. So. Probably um, I, I say it as a joke, but yeah. I really do mean it. I mm-hmm. think that there's different aspects or avenues of wealth mm-hmm. that many people of color just do not engage in because they simply think it's too complicated to learn. Um, and I, I believe that investing, whether it's. Um, in yourself through education and degrees or in the stock market or whatever mm-hmm. ways you want to invest is is worth learning. Um, so I, I would say it, it, it's worth it. I'm going to push back on that just uh, a little bit. No, go. just let's it, go. No, because I mean, it brought up something that I learned in uh, with Leadership Delaware this past uh, this past week in terms of financial literacy. Right. And like a lot of times we say, yeah, I mean, it's just about people being more aware and like just having the language and the lingo to, mm-hmm. to make these investments, but you need the capital to do it. So like, how, how do you do you, both? Yeah, how do you do both? I mean, like how I'm supposed to invest or start building this portfolio of real estate or any of that stuff when I don't even have the bread, I'm trying to figure out that's not even the priority so in my head. I agree 1000%. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is gonna be a whole other podcast discussion because I feel that systemic sh- structures have, 
kind of put people of color and underrepresented people in a position where they don't have that disposable income to be able to invest. Um, So yes, it's easy for me to even say like, hey, I wish I could invest. (laughs) But if the game is stacked against you, what can the creators of the game do to, I don't even want to say level the field, Mm -hmm. but at least to shed light on it so that those uh, obstacles are eliminated for future generations mm-hmm. so that we could start passing this knowledge knowledge on onto students yeah uh, for instance something as small as um i don't know how, how much you're, you're following executive orders by the new president mm-hmm. biden the delaware native but the whole concept of forgiving student loans and the level of God, please it, let it happen me, ahead, bro, me too Not, no for real but something as simple as that there's certain structures that overwhelmingly impact people of color in line yeah and with one sign of the pen can significantly help out a large amount of people so things like that need to occur mm-hmm. um is that them completely shining light on systemic oppression and racism no however it can immediately help out if not hundreds of millions at least a, a good 20 30 million people not have to worry about student debt um and that's just one example yeah um yeah. so I, I think that part of the discussions that need to happen are ways that the government organizations can better empower and support uh, legislature and things that can kind of directly help folks so they have more disposable income. But that's yeah. a whole other yeah. conversation. Yeah, and we'll, you know, once we air out, you know, we'll roll out our uh, our other, like, talks um, somewhere down the line. We'll but on the agenda. We'll, yeah, exactly. Um, last question, what's your why? Why not? I, I feel for me that everything from the way I look to my tattoos to the way that I carry myself with that Brooklyn swag, it it does not necessarily scream um, Ivy League educated um, or the founder and director of a program like DCS. However, I'm going to be myself unapologetically and I'm going to support my scholars always and I'm going to find a way to knock down the walls to better support them. So why not? Brother, I already knew that this was going to be dope. I'm excited for us to continue this conversation. Yeah, I mean, you just dropping knowledge all day, every day. Um, No, for real, real talk. Um, As always, to our listeners, um, like, subscribe, and rate the Scholar Spotlight Podcast. You know I got to throw that out there. But no, for real, with this episode, though, I really hope that people get, you know, they just got an opportunity to know more about you. You know what I mean? I think that's just so, it's so important. Um, And your unapologetic self, so... Yeah, appreciate you taking the time. 2021. There's yes, going to be more of this. But yep. Thank you.